Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. This is our Phantoms podcast um, and with me I have uh, Professor Ben Stenson from Edinburgh. So I always think there's a lot to unpack every issue and I think I say that all the time and I think there are some common themes which, which have come up in the last few months has certainly have sparked my interest and some things that have that underpin all that we do within neonatal research and and, and some things that um sort of are, are, are sort of changing the the sort of the sands or common belief um i think to start with um the research without prior consent um there's two papers in the current edition one is a sub-analysis of the HELP trial, and one is an editorial on that, um, and really about uh, how, uh, how different approaches to consent um, really can yield sort of slightly different populations and therefore slightly different results. Yes, I think it's a really important issue. Um, it's really difficult to do research on babies in the early hours after they're born, and um, that isn't obviously in the interest of babies because it means that many of the interventions that we choose to use at that time are less well evidenced than they might be. So there's a real patient interest in having higher quality information. And if you have to get consent from the parents before birth to, for instance, research delivery room interventions, um, it's only those that are in hospital long enough to enable that process to happen in a meaningful way. You can't really have a detailed conversation with a mother in labor. Uh, So only a certain type of baby gets recruited. And consequently, when people look at results, they allow their prior biases to influence the extent to which they believe those might apply to all of the other babies. And um, the phenomenon's been measured in this study by Sunita Vora and colleagues, And because they actually, in different parts of the world where they were doing their research, were allowed to use different recruitment models. And they were able to show quite clearly that when in centres that were allowed to adopt an approach which um, obtained consent from the parents afterwards, uh, they recruited a different group of babies to the ones who could only recruit with prior informed consent. It's, It's been shown before the support investigators um, observed a similar phenomenon. And um, it really brings home the importance of us finding ways to normalize research conduct to a greater degree so that the public trust is there, the trust on the part of the ethics advisory committees is there to enable this kind of research to take place um, more easily in the interests of patients. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right in terms of when we do consent a certain way, we get a certain type of baby. And when we do uh, consent another uh, in another way, we get a, a slightly different type of baby that are perhaps less well prepared or or have had a, a different sort of perinatal course. Um, and I think in order to sort of make sure we have a holistic uh, approach to the, the research that we do, we need to include 
all the types of babies that get treated, the ones that are in hospital for three weeks uh, beforehand or the parents are in hospital three weeks beforehand, as well as the, the babies that um, arrive in and, and deliver on the doorstep quite precipitously. Um, and just to remind people what the HELP trial is, the HELP trial was the hyperthermia, hypothermia, it was a plastic bag study for, for, from memory um, that was uh, from Sunnybrook in Toronto. That was a, a multi-centre international randomised control trial, if I remember correctly. Yeah, they were trying to demonstrate the impact of polyethylene wrap on admission hypothermia. They had to have the babies in the studies from birth. Yeah, yeah polyethylene is probably a better way of describing it than the plastic bag study. That doesn't make it sound quite as scientific and nice. But uh, speaking of uh, babies who are perhaps prepared for delivery and those who aren't, um, I certainly find the um, being in a, in a retrieval post at the minute, um, the outborn study in uh, or the outborn very low birth weight Japanese study, which I think really sort of confirmed uh, that the incidence of um, acquired brain injury in these in these babies or IVH um, tends to be be higher. Uh, in the first three days of life and really follows on from, I think, um, a, a correction in the towards the end of last year from the Victoria group of uh, perinatal data, um, which indicated sort of the same thing. So this reinforces that babies need to be centralised and we should be more aggressive with the centralisation, would you agree? Well, yes, I think there's loads of epidemiological evidence that babies overall do better the highest risk babies, if they're cared for in large centres with high throughput of babies of that type. And um, it's not just a case of the babies getting their care there, it's a case of enabling them to get there. So studies like this that show slightly worse outcomes give rise to concern about whether that's related to the care that's available to the babies before transfer or the stress that's involved in transferring them or both. But whichever it is, the simple fact is that there's a very wide range between services and setups in how successful people are in arranging that the babies are born in a large tertiary centre. And it's quite plain that there is work to be done in optimising that and that some centres are better than others. And these are things that require a lot of clinician collaboration and will to change and not new evidence and not new funding or new costs, just better organisation. So it really gives us all a, a duty to, to pick this challenge up and get on with it. Absolutely. And I think um, making sure that, again, uh, I think I've said this before, a perinatal approach to obstetricians talking to, to neonatologists and un understanding the risks and then neonatologists understanding the risks of, of moving the, the mother and the difficulty in making that decision and not wanting to have babies deliver in, in ambulances or in even worse settings. Um, but collaboration and communication is, is almost certainly the what, what's required rather than any more data. Um I agree. And part of the problem is that the risks aren't palpable to the clinicians on the ground because their individual spheres of activity are relatively small. And it's easy for them to console themselves with the thought that the babies do very well in their hands uh, because the, you can't really measure the outcomes in such small numbers. It's only when you look at population-based data that you see this. And it's nothing to do with whether one hospital is better or another. It's simply that if this is centralised to the degree that it can be, the 
the resulting larger hospitals can get better still. Yeah, it's it's about driving the numbers to drive up the the, the experience and quality of, of care, rather than it's sort of an individual sort of silo um, approach. Um, we have lots of individual centres trying to approach it in their own well-meaning way. Um, but uh, as the data showing the the effect is centralised, so I think the care needs to be as centralised and organised. Great. So moving on to some respiratory um, studies, and certainly um, one that, that caught my eye in, in the journal before you before actually that you'd mentioned it in the phantoms was um, uh, the, the the high flow or CPAP uh, study. Um, to crudely put, um, but but Brett Manley, I think, and his group uh, looking at the flow that's generated by CPAP whenever the pressure has essentially eliminated and, and this well i'll let you sort of give, give your thoughts on it rather than just just mine but i find this extremely interesting and knowing what the journey has been high flow versus cpap over the last perhaps over the last 10 years um since sort of the first hyperspace study was published um and the, the competing thoughts on people who use cpap and people who use high flow um i find this is particularly an interesting and very elegantly uh, performed study yeah i agree it's a neat study i remember talking about this subject with colin morley who's one of the senior authors on this paper a few years ago and thinking that it was a, a really nice idea so i was delighted when it came to the journal and we were able to publish it and uh, Colin and his colleagues are very good at breaking down the questions that we need to answer into small steps and answering them properly. And this is a real neat example of that. So um, obviously high flow and CPAP are, are the forms of non-invasive respiratory support that babies spend the most time on. And there's a, a lot of debate and controversy about whether one or other is better than the other of what one's doing and um, fans of high flow are really uh, really major on the importance of the flow going through the nasopharynx generating dead space washout um, CPAP fans are really big on the importance of maintaining pressure but the simple fact is that the more data we see the more it's clear that both of these techniques deliver both CPAP and dead space washout. So in this study, they took the opportunity of using the method of action of bubble CPAP and um, to measure the effective minimum nasopharyngeal flows in infants on CPAP. So when they turn the flow rate down on bubble CPAP to the point that you see no more bubbles escaping, then you know that all remaining flow that's going through the system is coming out through the baby's nasopharynx. And on the kinds of CPAP levels that are typically in use, they were able to show that you had nasopharyngeal flow, which is very comparable to the sorts of flow rates used in high flow. And they themselves point out that there are plenty of other data um, from people who've studied infants on high flow and measured their CPAP levels to show that at the kind of high flow levels people use, you generally have um, CPAP levels comparable to those that are often used by fans of CPAP. So it just illustrates to me that um, the 
differences in these techniques in terms of their physiological effects are probably a lot smaller than people realize. And um, they're really, in many respects, doing the very same thing. So it's not surprising that it's difficult for us to determine solidly whether one is better than the other, because they probably aren't all that different. Which, of course, then begs begs the question that obviously in, in a number of studies they have proven to be different of how those studies have approached the, the, the acquisition of the data. And I suspect having had some people uh, on, on the podcast discussing HiFlow and some of the institutions that, that use HiFlow quite predominantly, certainly they, it would seem that there is perhaps a, it's not a physiological effect, but perhaps a user effect um, and an experience effect, um, given the fact that the, uh, the physiological data seems to be um, sort of a reaching a sort of a, an infinite point of, of commonality. Um, um, but I, I, I think this, this was a great study and certainly um, one which should generate a lot of, of discussion, hopefully will generate a lot of discussion, which, which brings us sort of neatly on to the, um, it's the, uh, the, the dialing up changes in, in FIO2 um, by Christoph Schwartz and his colleagues um, looking at the uh, requiring changes in, in, in FIO2 and how those are translated to, to a, a respiratory device um, and really perhaps dovetails with the automated oxygen uh, narrative review, which I uh, in error thought this study was about, but again, shows uh, the, um, the the responsiveness of the systems that we use and the, perhaps the, the, that babies are, are, are not quite as, um, perhaps they're not quite as responsive as the, or as the system that, that, that they're attached to. I think that um, neonatologists use a lot of high-tech equipment whilst only having a superficial understanding of what it's doing and how it works. And so I found this fascinating because it's simply a bench study and um, they've put an additional oxygen sensor in a circuit so that they can measure when a caregiver turns the oxygen dial to set a new FiO2, how long does it take before the gas arriving at the patient would reflect that new FiO2. And they've used very um, fast responsive sensors. So it's not um, an art, the results are not an artifact of the, the setup. And um, they, this, the simple answer is a surprisingly long time. So um, it was something like 17 to 31 seconds that it took from a twiddle of the dial for the FiO2 to finally reflect that. And, and, and obviously that's just the FiO2 that is available to the patient. From that point of FiO2 change in the patient, the baby's got to breathe it in and out quite a few times, wash out their air spaces to achieve a new alveolar FiO2. So there'll be a further lag in that. And it implies that you're going to be um, at least 15, probably nearer 60 seconds before the change in the baby's saturations truly reflect the change that would result from the uh, twiddle of the dial. And it, it, I think you often see um, circumstances in unstable babies when people are standing next to them and they're twiddling the dial pretty frequently and um, cannot be allowing enough time for the changes to stabilize and be reflected. 
And so it's just useful additional background knowledge. It's bound to be specific to the individual device and to vary a bit between devices. And perhaps we'll start seeing data that looks at that as well. But it's something people ought to know. And as you've already alluded, it's also something that must feed in to the design of automated systems for adjusting FIO2. Yeah, um, I think you're you're right. I mean, it's obviously a, there are a specific setup um, that the the, the uh, investigators used, um, but just the understanding that the pieces of equipment that we use do have inbuilt, you know, for want of a better term, sensitivities and specificities and lag times and delays and different mathematical algorithms that that are used by one company over another, and just understanding that. There is a difference, um, and um, you know, looking at how that machine responds, and then, then how the baby responds, uh, and then understanding the setup that you have is exceptionally important. And realizing that not everything that you see is necessarily reflected or true, and you have to filter it perhaps through the prism of machine error or, or human error, for um, for want of a, a better expression. Um, and the the automated oxygen algorithms which I think you have said that you believe that they are they are here to stay and, and are emerging um, and something that we've talked about uh, in this podcast um, before um, this is a very interesting narrative review uh, from the, the Netherlands um, uh, really hi- highlighting that the number of, of algorithms that, that are present they don't do a head-to-head comparison um, I don't believe I don't believe they're able to do that but um, certainly highlight and perhaps driving a hypothesis that there, there needs to be some uh, detailed comparison of these algorithms as they emerge and make their way onto the shop floor. Yes, the reason I think they're here to stay is that they work. And when you compare the achieved oxygen saturation patterns of babies who are cared for using these automated algorithms to the patterns achieved by the same babies in crossover studies when the oxygen adjustment is left to the clinical team, the babies who are cared for with the automated oxygen algorithms spend more time in their intended target range than when they're cared for by manual adjustment. And, um, but the interesting thing is that there are more and more of these algorithms out there and they're all designed differently. Some of them are more adaptive than others. Some of them are targeting a range rather than a central value. Some of them are um, more willing to turn up FiO2 quickly in response to low FiO2 than they turn it down in response to high saturation. So the achieved oxygen saturation patterns that you would get would be predicted to be different between these devices. So it's quite important that we don't just say we'll all just set them whatever device we've got to the same level. We actually need to understand the extent to which that affects uh, saturation patterns differently between devices, because we've got a reasonable amount of data out there now that modest changes in the distribution of saturation have an impact on important outcomes like death and NEC and retinopathy of prematurity. So we're approaching the point that these devices are becoming sufficiently widespread that we can do large-scale evaluation of their comparative efficacy and also start doing studies to work out how they should be set 
and get the best outcomes. I've actually been worried about it for a while because um, if you set them to achieve a saturation of 93, then they will usually achieve that. Whereas caregivers will achieve and achieve saturation of about 94, 95. But what we don't know is which will bring about the best, um, the best balance of outcomes. So we definitely need to determine that they make outcomes better, not just care easier. Absolutely. And then not wanting to, to go into it, but that brings us on to then what actual targets do we, do we require? And I think um, without creating too much controversy, we don't really know that yet. So I think there's probably a lot of work in that space to be done. And now that we're 10 years post some of the bigger studies which have which have looked at those targets, perhaps this um, this technology might be able to, to give us a more um, accurate approach to how we answer that, that question in the, in the future. Yeah, I mean, these technologies more or less deliver what you ask them to do. So they'll enable us to study target saturations much more effectively than we could before. So they're definitely going to enable a lot of useful prospective research to take place. And, and the only, um, the, just circling back to the, the last study we haven't mentioned in, in the phantoms is uh, video messaging, asynchronous uh, video messaging, um, which I think is the sort of proves the old adage that necessity is the mother of invention. Um, so this is a, a study um, which has uh, looked at the, um, the benefit of a, of, a, of a video messaging system to parents in, in, in NICU. And I think during um, the various stages of lockdown and pandemic, this has become quite a, a popular way of, of um, continuing engagement with families uh, in, in NICU, especially, I think, in the UK. Yes, I don't know how widely they're used internationally, but they've become very popular in the UK. And um, the nursing staff or anyone involved in caring for the baby can take a brief video tablet type device and upload it to a website that families have access to and can provide access to chosen others to. And it enables frequent little um, updates of how things are going and just even more family contact. And obviously, it's important that families should have all of the contact they want with their babies. And um, that's been made a little more challenging by um, the lockdown and visiting regulations that have been imposed during the pandemic. So this has really been hugely valuable to us during the pandemic. But it's one of these things that's here to stay to a much greater extent now um, than it probably would have been by now were it not for the pandemic. It's an example of how um, it's causing us to learn things that, that would have been valuable whether or not there was a pandemic. And certainly, I think if we're talking about more aggressive centralization um, of, of babies to, to larger centers, um, that certainly means that you know, families moving and traveling um, or their babies traveling and being looked after further away from, from where they would have been otherwise. And perhaps this, this, this video messaging can, and can allow a sort of a greater interaction and, and make life a little bit easier for families not having to travel. Certainly, um, 
in the region that I work in, Western Australia, which is a fairly large um, area, um, video um, uh, has become very useful because of the, 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 the families can be often thousands of kilometers away from 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 where their where their homes are so um i think uh, as we've talked about other uh, other aspects that the perhaps benefits that the the pandemic has has accelerated uh this is this, this is definitely seems to be one of them and um i agree it's, it's a technology that is ubiquitous in other parts of 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 our lives and it, it's nice to see it doing some good rather than perhaps uh, being used for more frivolous purposes. Okay, nice to talk to you. Yeah, nice to talk to you too, Ben. And of course, uh, people can interact with what we've been uh, talking about via the the, the, the Twitter accounts, um, uh, the ADC underscore FN or Jonathan underscore uh, Davis3 or at Stenson Ben. Um, and of course, there's comments on, on the website and uh, you can uh, comment wherever you get your podcasts from, whether it be Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or SoundCloud, uh, which uh, the the journal tends to to put these um podcasts onto so thanks again ben for for the conversation um uh, we look forward to next time